Now, we continue the series, which is looking specifically at Advent. And just as a reminder, when we're doing this Advent, this is uh, something that the church has done now for probably 1,500 years, where we have looked at these four weeks and said, how do we give a concentrated view of what it is that Christ did and what Christ will do? And so Advent, we're looking at him as when he came the first time, and then we're really focusing on when he will come the second time. And so last week, we looked at hope. And we said many ways it kicks this series off. It sets the tone for us because hope is all about what God is going to do. We bank on it. We trust in it. God is going to do something. But it is overwhelmingly we're putting our our, our hope in that which is to come in the future. Now, what I didn't mean to imply is that there are never times in which we enjoy genuine, true, lasting, sincere joy, peace, Etc. That's what we'll look at this morning. Peace. We're looking at the peace that Christ has already brought, and then we're going to be looking at the peace that Christ will bring. But keep in mind, in many ways, he has already made something happen for us right now. What did he do for us right now that brings true, genuine peace? And here's the question. Can we even actually experience peace here on the earth? Yes. I am convinced that we can have true, genuine peace. Here's what I believe equally. It cannot be experienced exclusively on this earth, meaning that I am always and only experiencing peace. Now, angst is just a normal part of life. Angst is... We experience angst. If you experience no angst in life, then I would say, please come and see me afterwards because we need to talk about your lying. Or your naivety. One of the two, you need help. And so come and see me. Angst is, it's a normal part of human existence. Now, why is that? I don't have to explain this, do I? Because we live in a world that is jacked up. And so we experience angst over things rightfully, we should, we, we should want them differently. And when we don't think they're going to be different, it creates a certain amount of angst in us. Now, this is not a clinical definition. You won't find this in any psychology book. If you go to counseling tomorrow, ask them about this. They'll probably tell you your, your pastor's a moron. It's a horrible definition. But let me just give you a, a layman's definition of angst. Angst is a present condition or a present response to a potential future. We experienced some level of, uh uh-oh, I'm not sure I want this, when we think about what might happen in the future. Now, we can experience angst over what has happened in the past, but most of the time we're still, even in that, thinking about what might, might affect our future. Angst is this, uh uh-oh, it's this, uh, ah, what might or might not happen. We experience it at every age, at every stage in our life. The first time that you begin taking exams in school, you experience angst. You've heard about it. You had some older siblings that talked about these exams. And if they were good older siblings, then they scared you to death about them. They over-exaggerated. They said, yeah, these tests will be eight hours long, man. That's what my brother did to me. I went into, 
Okay, true story. Now, I was in high school at this point. My brother told me that I had to take this. Uh, what, what, um, we only did the ACT. What's the other one besides A? SAT, thank you. Told me you had to take the SAT. Now, it wasn't true because in Alabama, you know, well, you can count to 10, you can get in college. I'm tipped over there. <laughs> but I took the ACT. He said, you got to take the SAT, and then you got to take it at this certain location. I went, oh, okay. And that that location is the highest crime in Montgomery. So I sign up for it because my brother told me to do it. And then he told me, it's not a big deal, but it's different from the ACT. It's only going to last about six and a half hours. So I went there expecting it to take six and a half hours. And it, now, it wasn't until after it was done, and my brother went, oh, did you really do that? I said, yeah, you took me out of it. He went, oh, man. I was just kidding. Thank you. I will kill you. <laughs> it was... I have no idea why I just shared that. <laughs> Either it's not even in my notes um, in there. Oh, that's right. School tests. That's right. It's good. We experience angst over the future at every age and at every stage um, in our life. So it may be school-related when we're younger, wondering about how we're going to perform in school, wondering whether or not we'll do well enough in school in order to get to another school. And then for others of us, even want to go to yet another school even after that. If you're a doctor, you just keep going on. You've got 14 schools that you go to over a period of 100 years, and then you get to practice. I, we have angst over whether or not we will get married. We have angst over whether or not we will get into a fraternity or a sorority. We have angst over whether or not we will have enough money at the end of the month to pay for. Some of us wonder, will we ever have enough money to ever pay for Christmas? We have angst over what might happen with our health. We get certain things that go on. We get certain feelings, et cetera, and, and we don't know, and doctors can't diagnose it. There's, it creates angst. That's understandable. That's normal. That's natural. We have angst over not knowing whether or not we will ever be able to stop working and just enjoy life. But let me tell you what I really believe we have the greatest amount of angst over in our lifetime, and it's true at every age, and it's true of every stage. We have the greatest amount of angst over relational conflict and over our own guilt and sin. I'll say it again. We experience the greatest amount of angst over relational conflict and our own guilt and sin, and this is true at every age and stage of life. Young kids may experience angst after they have lied to mom and dad. Some personalities will never experience angst over a lie. They don't even know that they lied. Not that I have any children like that. Not that I was that child. When there is relational conflict, when there is strife that we are experiencing, whether it be through a friendship or a marriage or parent and, and, and child or coach and player or whatever it is, when there is relational conflict that we have, there is angst that we experience over not knowing when will this conflict end and how good will this relationship be moving forward. We wonder, will we be able to work through some of the conflicts so that we're no longer banging it? But will we ever experience the deep-seated joy that we once had before? Will that trust ever be rebuilt? Will we be able to move forward knowing that we have wronged each other in the process? Let me tell you what really helps with this. Marriage and parenting. 
Because if you've been married for more than five minutes, you know that you are going to disappoint your spouse and your spouse is going to disappoint you. And you are forced to work through relational conflict. Or you can just ignore it and act like it's never been there. Intimacy, however, is built on resolved conflict. It's true in friendships. It's true in familial relationships. And it's certainly true in our spiritual relationship. Intimacy is built on resolved conflict. So relational conflict is where we experience the great... Uh, the greatest amount of angst uh, that we have, but then also in our own personal guilt and shame. Now, we can try all we want to not care about how we impact others. We can tell ourselves that we're not going to get worried over it. We, We can try to ignore the pain of others that we've caused, but I don't know of a single human soul outside, I'm not trying to be silly, outside of a psychopath that, that never takes into consideration the other people's feelings. And when we have caused relational harm to others, and that's where we experience a tremendous amount of angst. Have you ever had to go to your child with your hat in hand and say, I am so sorry you did not deserve that? How long did it take you to, to do that? You ever had to go to a neighbor? Go to a boss? Go to a coach or a player? A teacher or a student? Had to go to someone across the street or you had to go to someone across the country? Have you ever had to go to someone and say, I am so sorry that I did it to you again? If we are not in the habit of regularly apologizing to others, then I will predict that we will live with constant angst and strife. It is in your best interest to deal with the relational conflict that you have. It's in their best interest to deal with the relational conflict that you have. If you don't, I promise you, your guilt and shame will eat your lives. So now the question comes, then what do we do with our guilt and shame? I'm glad you asked. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 14. Angst is, but peace will be. This is what this passage is going to tell us. We're going to read the first three verses of this, and then we're going to skip down all the way to verse 25, but it's going to tell us that peace will be. Now, peace is also a present uh, response or present condition. But rather than it being a response to a potential future, we're going to see that peace is just a a present response that we have to an eternal God. If you would, in honor of God's word, would you stand as we read John chapter 14, begin reading in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Let's skip down to verse 25. 
These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You may be seated. Now, the context in this uh, particular part of the Bible is this is Jesus right before he's going to go to a cross. John takes a considerable amount of time in his gospel to give us the last week of Jesus' life. He gives a considerable amount of time to just the last, uh, the, 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 the night before he was betrayed. And so there's a lot of sayings, a lot of teaching from Jesus. Remember, they had gathered for a meal together. It was the Passover meal. Jesus had given them instructions to go over here to wait for him. They had their meal Jesus did some odd things right before this. It tells us that he gets up, he wraps a towel around his waist, he, he, he wipes their feet, uh, 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 he washes them with water. Um, Jesus be act, begins acting like a servant in the process. Then he tells them, I want you to pay special attention to what I'm doing and saying. Because what I'm doing and saying, I want you to do in the lives of others. That's David McNeely's summary. And in John chapter 14, it continues what Jesus has been saying. So he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now let that sink in. Some of the most useless advice that we will ever get in our lives is this, just don't worry. Thank you very much for that. I'm trying not to worry. But the whole reason I'm worrying is because I can't get myself to stop worrying. If I knew how to stop worrying, I would have stopped a long time ago. The general population is not sitting around thinking, I wonder what I could be anxious about at this particular moment. They're trying to find peace. They're trying to find comfort. That's why we turn to some things that are artificial. We're trying to bring some measure of peace in our lives. And we haven't been able to find the best way to do that. So keep that one away. Just, just, talk about it. just don't ever tell anyone again. Just don't worry. So what does Jesus tell people? Just just let not your hearts be troubled. Thank you very much, Son of God. You have a distinct advantage. You have the God card. I don't have that yet, and I never will. What does Jesus mean when he says, let not your heart? It cannot be just simply useless advice. He's saying, actively oppose your heart moving in a direction in which it is going to stay in angst. When he says, let not, he means go on the proactive and pursue peace. See, peace, for most of us, we want it to come automatically and we want it to be overwhelming. And regardless of what the circumstances are in life, we want God to go, poof, you now have peace in the midst of everything that's going on so that we never again have an anxious thought. We would love that to happen. That's just not biblical. Oh, God is going to bring peace. Jesus is going to give us peace. But notice how Jesus starts it out. Let not, meaning pursue peace. There are some things that you are going to be responsible for, that I am going to be responsible, that we are going to be responsible for in pursuing peace. God is the one who's ultimately responsible to bring it to us. We are responsible to pursue it. Let not your hearts be troubled. How do we do that? 
we believe in God. Not just an intellectual ascent to truth, but getting back to the place, once again, I'm saying, I am surrendering the controls of my life over to you. So right now, in the midst of these circumstances, God, once again, I want to declare, it's not my life, it's yours. I'm throwing my hands up in the air in surrender and saying, whatever the outcome is that you want, so be it. If it makes me look really good in the process, hallelujah, that's what I want. If it makes me look bad in the process, that's not what I want, but I'll submit to it. Whatever it is that you want, God, I'll do that. Believe in God. Trust in God. Place your faith in God. And then practically speaking, submit your will to God. Believe also in me. It's what you're doing with God the Father, do also with Jesus. And then he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have gone to the trouble of telling you that that's the case? And what's Jesus saying right here? Jesus is saying, I am a truth teller. Please don't let that skip you. Don't let it be a duh, thank you, Pastor Dave. Jesus is a truth teller. Do you believe that? Do you believe it with the orientation of your life, with the direction of your life? Do you believe it more than just intellectually? Do you believe it more in theory? Or do you believe it so much so that you're saying, Jesus, whatever you say, I'm willing to follow. Jesus is a truth teller. And what he says is this, I'm going to go to a place in my father's house. There's lots of rooms for you. And I'm going there and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Which means right now his disciples are saying, you're, wait, here, there, Father, I, you're, I know you're connected with God. I'm not, where, where, where are you going? And we're not going to read this part, but, but Thomas literally tells him that. Dude, seriously, where are you going? You know the way. No, I don't. Jesus is going to a place that he is going to prepare for us. What is that place? It is a place of constant and eternal peace where there is wholeness. There is no angst. There is no anxiety. I'm going to prepare that place for you. I promise you, it says, it's going to happen now. Skip all the way down to verse 25. I'm sorry. I'm going there, and, and, and I give you my word, I'm going to come back. So I'm going to go away for a little bit. I give you my word that I'm coming back. We've said it many, many times, but remember, there is no pain like the pain of separation. So when the disciples, it begins to hang into them, when it begins to, to, to make sense to them that Jesus is going away, they are now filled with even more angst than they were before. Okay, they're, they're, this isn't primarily a passage about going to heaven. This is primarily uh, Jesus' words he's trying to give to, to his disciples when they were experiencing angst over losing him. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. Now, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the Father's going to sit in my name. He's going to teach you all these things. I'm going to go away. It's going to be better for you. The Holy Spirit's going to come in. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you and lead you and teach you all things. The Holy Spirit is going to open both your eyes to be able to see and also your heart to be able to receive. This is God's job. God's job is to give you vision from what he says in his word, and his job is to open your heart 
so that you can receive it. Your job is to look into the scriptures. Your job is to open your ears. Your job is to say, God, get me in a place where I'm willing to say whatever you ask, I'm willing to do it. The Holy Spirit's going to come along. He's going to do his job. He's going to teach you all of these things. Now, peace, I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. If we are going to be a people that seek peace, then I believe that we really must understand what it means for us to seek it. Hear me. If you are going to seek man's peace, you are going to be disappointed. If you're going to seek the kind of peace that you can create, you are going to be disappointed in the peace that you, that you, that you have. Jesus says, it's my peace. My peace is what I am leaving with you. My peace is what I am going to give to you. Jesus is a truth teller. Jesus is also a giver. And what does he give us? He gives us his peace. Now, our job is to pursue it. Not as the world gives do I give to you, meaning the removal of conflict. It's not that kind of peace that's just going to be just simply the removal of conflict. I'm talking about something that goes beyond the removal of conflict. Yes, I'm going to do that. It's not less than that, but it is going to be much more than that. I'm going to actually move past that conflict, restore the relationship, and remove your guilt and shame. How's he going to do that? By living a perfect life on our behalf. By doing everything that is necessary to maintain not just a lack of conflict with God, but actually do everything to maintain a thriving, incredible, uh, uh, magnetic uh, 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 relationship with God that we all desire in the deepest levels of our soul. Jesus experienced it. Jesus accomplished it. He did all that was necessary. So now I'm going to give to you that peace. How? By removing the wrath of God from you so that there's no longer a reason for there to be conflict between God and you, so that you can freely pursue the person of God in your daily life. And in your pursuit of God, I'm going to do, the Holy Spirit is going to do, the Father is going to do what you can't do, and we're going to meet you in ways and even at times that are going to blow your mind. Do you know what the hardest truth for Christians to believe is? that we are genuinely and sincerely totally forgiven. We have a hard time believing that God does not hold a single thing against us because we hold things against us. We hold things against one another. And Jesus says, my peace, the kind of peace that I have with the Father, I'm going to give that peace to you. It's going to be a gift. All you can do is accept it, but you got to pursue it in the sense of, I'm going to bring it to you now, daily and regularly pursue the person of God. I 
Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What does your personal pursuit of peace look like with God? Just some very practical things here. Um, if we are going to uh, experience the kind of peace that, uh, that, that moves beyond the relational conflict that we have and beyond the guilt and shame that we uh, completely, that normally experience, um, what are some practical things that we need to do? Philippians chapter 4. It tells us that we need to pray. It tells us that we need to present our requests unto God. It tells us that we need to dwell on that which is good and right and noble and excellent and praiseworthy. We need to to get our minds to intentionally focus on the things that are true and right of God. So first of all, I would say this. If we're going to pursue peace, it means this. We need to be regularly consuming truth. You You don't have to try... And, and consume error, it's in front of us all the time. It will happen accidentally and will also happen naturally with me. I can turn any truth into a lie in a heartbeat with the help of no one. So we don't have to try to consume uh, lies and errors. Uh, we we, we got to give effort to pursuing and consuming, feasting on. Jesus or God told one of the prophets that he should actually eat the words. Symbolic, feasting on God's word. Just take a portion of every day and would you just read a portion of this? It is truth. If you can read it out loud, it's even better because now you're reading it and you're also listening to it. Take a portion of the day just to read this is truth and our minds must be in order to dwell on that which is good and right and noble and excellent and praiseworthy, we've got to be aware of what the truth is in order to meditate on it. So read, memorize, meditate, consume the Word of God. Second thing is this, though, pray. Here's what the Scriptures say. Present your request to God with thanksgiving, and listen, and the peace of God, not your peace, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace, which is what we want more than what we can produce, it's what Jesus is saying, I'm going to give it to you, not like the world gives. God's peace comes, according to the Scriptures, when we present our requests to God with thanksgiving. We said it before, it does not mean that we give thanks to God for all circumstances. We give thanks to God in all circumstances. We don't thank God for sin. We thank God that he is present with us even in the midst of sin. So just a quick question. What does your prayer life look like? Are you regularly and consistently presenting your requests to God with thanksgiving. If I am not consuming the word, dwelling upon the word, thinking upon the word, trying to memorize, meditate, etc., if I'm not trying to, to devote my thoughts towards there and I'm not presenting my request to God, I should not expect to have peace. I can have the kind of peace that man produces, but that's never brought about the kind of, 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 of satisfaction in my soul that I've been longing for. Take a portion of the day, 
So read God's Word, take it a portion of the day to pray and regularly present your request to God. This is what we are called to do. One last thing, and there's probably another 10 things I could list to you, but I want to keep it to three today. One last thing for us to pursue the peace of God. Keep short accounts with God and with others. Meaning this, regularly confess your sin. Just go to God and, and just confess your sin to him. Why? So that you will feel bad about it? No, quite the opposite. So that you can then hear him say, you are forgiven. Because of what Jesus has done, I don't hold it against you. And when we confess according to the scriptures, according to John and also the, the writer of Hebrews, there's something that happens to our consciences that gets cleansed when we are confessing to God. How many times have you ever heard someone say this? I confessed everything to my spouse or my boss or whatever, and it was like this weight was lifted off of me. It happens in, in our horizontal relationships. It happens in our vertical relationships. Just go to God regularly and consistently with your sin. Acknowledge it. And, and, and watch what he's going to do in your conscience. Now, let me close by reading to you um, this passage. It comes from Micah chapter 5. Listen to what it says. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, who are little to be uh, among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth me, one who is in the ruler, is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah is a prophet from old, but long before Jesus hits the scene, and he's pointing forward to a time in which he's telling God's people, hang in there, look forward, because there's somebody that's coming down the road. And this somebody is going to bring to you peace in a way that you have been longing for. It's going to be political. It's, it's going to be relational. It's going to be peace in the fullest sense of the word. He is going to bring it to you. But then he says something right here at the end that they, they just couldn't quite put together. It says, he himself is going to be your peace. Looks, I, I want to promise you this. If you do not have a personal walk with Jesus, I don't mean that there's, there's been a time in which you've prayed a prayer or walked an hour. Or something. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, you should never expect peace. Not the kind of peace that we're talking about here. Not the kind of peace that's in the midst of financial difficulty. It's not that the circumstances have changed. It's not that you're okay with the financial difficulty. It's that in the midst of that, you are at peace. It's not that you're, that you're, you're hunky-dory with, with all the relational conflicts going on. It means that in the midst of it, there is this overwhelming sense of peace. It's not that you're okay with your sin. 
It's that you know that God has done something with it and that he's not going to hold it against you. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, you should never expect that kind of peace because he is our peace. I want to share a story, and then I've asked Russell if he would play something for us, but I don't know where you are today in the midst of your angst. Angst is peace will be. It will come in a very real sense in the here and now. It will come in the fullest sense when Jesus returns. I've shared this story before, but I, I just want to share it again. Several years ago, I was... Um, not being a very um, obedient, um, uh, what's the right word, docile child. Um, I was in one of my normal and typical modes in which um, I wanted to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And I'd gotten some very clear instructions. And the instructions were, do not go out and get those clothes dirty. Now, I was in the mountains, and my cousin who was with me had a motorcycle. And this motorcycle, to me, a young child, I uh, was looking at, it was just way too much fun and way too inviting. So I got the words, uh, don't get dirty, but my, my, my cousin and I went out on this uh, ride, and we went on a ride that was one of the greatest rides of my life up to that point. Okay, Barely double-digit in years. But up to that point, it was the greatest ride that I had ever taken. He goes twists and turns and around. Finally goes, takes a sharp left turn. I see him take off and then I hear him just, and I went, oh, it's on. So I got mine, but same thing, took a left, went on. And as I go up, there's this ramp. There's this place that's, that's sort of natural, but it's clearly also been impacted by man-made uh, uh, efforts. And so it's this ramp. And so I take off on this ramp. And I go flying through the air, and in my mind it was Evel Knievel making his way across the Grand Canyon when it may have actually been four feet off the ground. But I'm flying through the air in slow motion as I'm looking at my cousin down over here to the right who has the largest grin you've ever seen on his face. He had totally set me up. And when I land, I land right in sewage. It's where the ground perked for all of this place where it was just built a ground print and right there, so and I go, and I get up and the first words that I remember are this, do not get those clothes dirty. So I began making my way back home with my cousin who is doing nothing but laughing hysterically as we make our way home, we get about 100 yards away from the house, and I tell him, I said, Ray, do not tell my mom. I have no idea how I'm going to get around this, but do not tell mom. Ray takes off immediately, goes right into the house, and out comes mom on the front porch in the mom stance. And I know I've got an opportunity in front of me. I can either take what's coming to me as a man, or I can drop the bike and run. I dropped the bike and ran. Mom hikes up her skirt, hops off of the porch, begins bionic woman style chasing me down until I finally realized I'm running with all this stuff on me. 
she is going to outrun me in the process. So I just fall down into the ground and I start weeping like a baby. Mom gets behind me. (laughs) And she wraps her arms around me and pulls me in. And I said, Mom, you really don't have... I love you. And it was at that moment as if my mom had cleansed me. A couple thousand years ago, Jesus came to earth. We were riding with a leader that's not qualified to lead us and he leads us right into the sewage called sin. And the only thing he does is point and laughs. Look at what you've done. And the last words that we remember is, be ye holy just as I am holy. And we begin making our way back to the Lord and we realize that we can either run or take what's coming to us. And oftentimes we run, but Jesus hopped off the porch and he went to a cross and he stretched out his arms. And as far as the east is from the west, he removed our sin. It was the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And he tells us, come. My peace I'll give to you. There's a portion of this sermon that I just couldn't preach, and so I asked Russell if he would finish up our sermon. I'll come back with one more sentence. But would you either listen or join in as he leads us in an old familiar hymn? When peace like a river
Haste the day when my faith shall be sighed. The clouds be rolled back as a Pursue it by taking a portion of each day to read God's word and let truth run through your mind and then intentionally dwell upon that truth over and over and over again. Pray, present your request to God with thanksgiving and then keep short accounts. Keep a short account of your sin with God and keep a short account of your sin with others. This is how we are called to pursue. It's not a formula. But understand what we talked about last week. Our ultimate hope does not lie that God would bring all the peace right here, right now. Our ultimate hope lies in the fact that there is a day coming in which we will be totally and completely at peace.